You're listening to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast, where each week we learn about Christian responsibility in adopting Bitcoin. And if my voice sounds unfamiliar, well, that's because this is really my first time on the show. So let me just take a moment to introduce myself. My name is Matt Solik. I'm currently the creative arts pastor at a church just outside the Atlanta, Georgia area, a Bitcoiner since January 2020 and uh, now co-hosting this show with Patrick. So I'm excited to get to share a little bit of my Bitcoin journey with you guys in some of the upcoming episodes. But for right now, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. So for the last 18 months or so, I've been sharing with people individually my personal journey with Bitcoin, you know, what it is and why it matters. Well, over the course of these last uh, 18 months, the last year and a half, those one-on-one conversations grew from just a few guys in my life group at church to now about a hundred or so people that are in my life. So for the last six months, I, uh, I've been praying and I've been looking for ways to be able to help educate people within the larger context of the church and within my local community about Bitcoin understanding and adoption. Well, just a few weeks ago, I discovered Patrick, who actually was connected for many years at the church that I'm currently serving at. So I got to read some of his incredible writings and uh, found this podcast. And then I just wanted to reach out to him. And uh, it turns out he, he lives literally about five blocks away from my house. So I texted him to see if we could maybe get together for some coffee. And in that conversation, I asked him, how, how can I help? I'm, I'm at your service. What can I do to, to get involved? And so anyway, here I am as a co-host and now audio engineer and producer of this show to maybe hopefully help bring up some of the uh, technical quality of the show to, to match some of the already incredible content and also provide just another voice of what it means to learn how to acquire and how to hold Bitcoin as a Jesus follower. So I'm excited and I'm humbled to be on the journey with you and uh, looking forward to getting to know some of you as listeners to this show. But anyway, that's about it for me for right now. Let's go ahead and jump into today's show. So as some of you may know, Patrick recently spent some time in El Salvador attending a Bitcoin conference. And during his time there, he got to meet some amazing people. On today's episode, Patrick talks with Cargo Harrison, who he met on a bus ride to El Zante, El Salvador and Bitcoin Beach. If you're unfamiliar with Cargo, he, get this, currently holds the Guinness Book of World Records for walking continuously from the southern tip of South America to the top of North America, from Chile to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. And as a 15-year-old, Cargo hitchhiked across his home state to visit a friend. Uh, and well, out of that, his wanderlust was born. So today, Patrick and Cargo discuss what it took to make the hike, the injuries that he had to endure along the way, along with some life-threatening and also emotions of defeat. Interestingly enough, Cargo became a Bitcoin millionaire, and then he became a Bitcoin multimillionaire on his hike in the middle of the Arizona desert in November and December of 2017. This is uh, really a fascinating and a fun discussion with a truly humble man. So without further ado, let's join Patrick and Cargo. Hey, Cargo, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. And for the listeners here, we are on the beach in El Zante, and I had the fortunate um, 
pleasure of sitting next to Cargo, and I don't know Cargo's last name, but that's okay if we don't want to dox you. Um, but I, I presume you're pretty famous. Um, anyway, I sat down next to Cargo and we just started talking. Um, I'm an introvert, but um, Cargo is not, but we just started talking. <laughs> and he has a very fascinating story, and I thought I would like to share it. And Cargo, just uh, tell us a little bit about you know who you are and Really, um, I want to talk about your fascinating journey, uh, your physical journey, and then your Bitcoin journey. Okay. Well, um, my name is Cargo Harrison, and uh, a few years ago, I decided that uh, uh, I wanted to walk from the very bottom of South America to the very top of North America uh, through hiking, and it uh, took me a couple couple times to, to get it down but uh, um, and so it took me about a year and a half to, to walk every step of the way uh, so I, I'm at this I, I'm at this time I'm the only person that's ever uh, through hiked uh, the entire continent from the very bottom to the to the top uh, it was uh, a year and a half journey uh, 14,500 miles had a lot of great experiences along the way. That's fantastic. And uh, Cargo's very humble. Uh, he's got a great experience that I learned about. So we're going to kind of delve in a little bit to um, all of that. So uh, Cargo, for those of us who don't hike or live near the Appalachian Trail, I'm familiar with, you know, a hike through. So kind of explain kind of the differences between a hike through and, you know, the, the other forms of hiking that you can do to accomplish something like this. Okay, well... <clears throat> A lot of people that hike on the Appalachian Trail will attempt what's called a through hike, which is um, uh, hiking the entire the entire trail in one season. Which, uh, for the Appalachian Trail, that's that's close to about 2,200 miles. Um, that was my first major hike that I did back in 2011, which was kind of got me started on this. Uh, I'd done a lot of hiking before. Um, of course, uh, I, I I spent uh, nine years in the army. Um, uh, I served as an army ranger uh, back in the early 80s and so, cool. so had a lot of experience <laughs> um, you know patrolling and hiking and whatnot but uh, my first civilian type hiking uh, we did a big family hike on the Appalachian Trail starting starting in the early 2000s and then uh, and every time I, I I got a chance to get out on the Appalachian Trail uh, I hated it when I when it was time to get off, you know, you know, take two weeks here, ten days there, and finally in 2011, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do the whole thing as one continuous hike, uh, and uh, and it, it, I, I did it in average time, which was about five and a half months, five and a half to six months, and uh, so. Did you start in Maine or did you start, start in Georgia? I started in Georgia, so I did what they call the northbound hike, uh, so from Georgia to Maine. And um, like I said, that was a great experience for me. And uh, I always wanted to see if I could top that a little bit. And uh, a couple of years later, I was actually back with a friend that I had hiked on that trail with, just doing a week-long hike on the Appalachian Trail. And I got this idea uh, pop up in my head. I wonder if anybody's ever hiked the entire North, South, and Central American continent. And um, got all giddy and uh, made my way to a library in a small town along the Appalachian Trail and started looking it up and found out that uh, 
this English fella had 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 started hiking that route back in the 70s and 80s and it took him six and a half years to do it on and off and I decided I could do it you know a little bit better than that and um, and eventually I got to to where I thought you know I could I could probably do it in less than two years if I decided to do it as a through hike one continuous hike all the way through no stops and so that's what I ended up doing so what just thinking about the logistics of something like that I mean what what did you have to think through to prepare for a hike of that nature you know there's no precedent to it really and so I didn't really know where to look or what I had to prepare for uh, only my own past experience and um, you just had had to have a little bit of that no fear factor where you just uh, you know try not to worry about the small stuff uh, the, the biggest thing is you just got to go out and decide that you're gonna do it and then just go out and do it because like I said I had no precedent I had I had nobody that I could talk to uh, that had done it before that I could get information um, it, it was almost going into a blind um, you know, you buy the ticket, you prepare physically as much as you, you think you need to uh, as far as hiking goes. You get the equipment that you, you feel you're going to need along the way. And in my case, uh, you know, I, I had to custom make uh, a few things. Uh, my hiking poles were one, one of the things that I felt that that was the way that I was going to be able to do it because most of the way was road walking on hard pavement. And so I knew I couldn't carry a lot of weight on my back. And so I designed a pair of hiking poles that I could carry a lot of my stuff inside the hiking poles and I wouldn't have to carry it on my back. And that uh, a lot of your big time walkers, global walkers, will either push or pull some kind of cart, like a bicycle cart or something with them and take all their stuff like that. I, I chose not to do take that avenue. I chose to uh, have a small backpack and then carry most of my stuff inside my hiking poles. And, and it worked for me as far as being able to do, uh, you know, 30, 35, 40 miles a day. That's fantastic. And just for some reference here, you know, again, Cargo's been a little humble. The, the fact that he was a ranger, I mean, the, the success rate, and he, he passed ranger school on the first try. I think the success rate nowadays is like 30% uh, success rate on the first attempt. So that just speaks to the fortitude uh, and will willpower of, of someone like you, um, Cargo. So my hat's off to you as a former vet myself. Um, but, you know, as you, as you thought about preparing and you, and you get, the, get on the ground, um, were you ever... Was there ever a moment of doubt or like, what the heck am I doing? Because I know for me, um, a lot of times accomplishing tasks, especially when I was trained in the Army, a lot of times if you see somebody else or you're with somebody, it gives you that confidence that you can do it, but you were really on your own. So did you ever think, what am I doing? I, I absolutely did. Um, um, I, I started, I came up with the idea in March or April of 2015. In December, um, I landed in Ushuaia, Argentina, which was the southernmost city in the world, right there at the coast. And, and I started my hike right there. And um, I went 2,000 miles before I injured myself. And 
although I thought that I was well prepared for it, I, I really I really wasn't. I I tore my feet up bad. I tried to do too much. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going to get water. I didn't know where, where I was going to get food. Um, I just set out to do it, and I was in a lot of pain for a lot of that first attempt. Um, and and those thoughts did occur to me at that time. It's like, what the am I doing out here? You know, and and this is crazy. And um, and then I ended up rolling my ankle and I tore a tendon in in my left foot uh, when I was in Chile about 2,000 miles along the way and uh, it was a real severe injury and I had to stop and I had to fly back to the States but it was only during that time that I was in the States that uh, this real feeling of failure came over me mm. where I really thought what the I doing back here now and um, I've never been a depressive person I've always been a very optimistic person but during that next eight or nine months where I didn't know where I felt like I had finally found the thing that I wanted to do with my life and now I couldn't do it because that foot would not heal and I was I wasn't getting any younger I actually at the time I was 55 years old and I'm not getting I wasn't getting any younger and I didn't know that if I had to wait another year whether I would be able to even either you know be mentally or physically able to continue doing that stuff and so so that was really the a really hard time in my life was that seven or eight months not knowing whether I was going to be able to get back out there um, and do the thing that uh, that I felt I had to do with my life and uh, so what did you do during that time of, of doubting about if you could do this again or, you know, I mean, what did you do to get through that time? Well, I, I went ahead and uh, reevaluated, of course, everything that I had done wrong during that first attempt, okay. which was the type of shoes that I was wearing, the type of equipment that I took with me, uh, what I could get rid of, what would make my, my hiking a little bit easier. Of course, I'd already been through 2,000 miles of probably the toughest part of the hike. Uh, which was the uh, Patagonia Desert in uh, southern Argentina, mm. which I still believe is probably the hardest part of the entire uh, the entire walk. Because of altitude, lack because of water, of wind. wind. Okay. Because of the wind and the remoteness. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so I reevaluated there, and then of course, um, like I said, with that with with that mental aspect of 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 knowing that I have to accomplish something in my life that uh, when I die, I'm going to know that, that I did something uh, worthwhile to myself. And that was, that was what it was, uh, was being the first person ever through hike that entire way. And now I even thought that I could even improve on doing it faster than, than what that Englishman did it back in the 70s and 80s. I thought, hey, I could do it now as a through hike and not just as as a regular hike i could do it as a through hike and i could do it in less than two years um and of course then as it as it turns out i did it in less than a year and a half um, and so so that time that i had away uh, actually turned into one of the most worst feelings and then i feel like during the seven months that that i that i was able to to rethink my entire trip was probably a good thing that that I injured myself because I went back with a whole new understanding of what I had to do and and never when I went back and started again uh, until I completed my hike did I ever again question 
uh, what I was doing out there. That's fantastic. I mean, that's that's all, you know. I shared a little bit of my story. I'm an entrepreneur, and you know, sometimes failure is what you need to become Absolutely. successful. Yeah. And I and I always call it my big failure, but I, but it, it, it actually my big failure inspired me so much uh, because because I. I, I probably experienced the biggest failure in, in my life during during that time that I was off, and and uh, I never wanted to go there again. Wow! And so, uh, through whatever happened after that, um, I pretty much took it with a grain of salt and a smile on my face. No matter whether you know I was going through uh, extreme periods of heat or or cold or or pain or whatever. Um, uh, even the last 2,000 miles of my hike was on crutches, and, and that we'll, hurt we'll, a lot. We'll, we'll but, get to that. We'll get to that. That hurt a lot. But even through that, I never once questioned being out there or finishing, because I knew that was the worst. Would have been the worst thing that could ever happen. Sure. So, do you think that your life experience got you to that point, or it was that initial failure that got you to that mentality? Uh, I, it was a combination of both. I, I, you know, my life experience, of course. Uh, you know some of the things that I had done before in, in my life. Uh, you know, they, it gives you kind of a never quit attitude uh, to, to do things. Uh, but but without that seven months, I don't think that uh, that I would have been able to to be as successful as I was um, when I attempted it again. Well, and you know, I think what's fascinating also, you know, you mentioned the Dorian Gap, and I immediately. Knew, knew what that was. Um, so for, for the folks that don't know what the Dorian Gap is, I want you to kind of explain what that is and then kind of your, your journey through the Dorian Gap. Uh, the Dorian Gap is a, is a section of, of land between Columbia and um, Panama. It's really a no man's land. Um, it's a place where anti-government um, uh, militias would hang out. Uh, a lot of drugs, drug running, uh, human trafficking, uh, unchartered, no roads, uh, and it was the only place that really worried me as I was walking up through the continent, as far as how I was going to get there, and and uh, and you know worried my friends and family and other people say there's no way you can get through there. People don't get through the Garing Gap. You don't go through there, and and I, I kind of believed it, but but in. In the back of my mind, I thought, you know, I'm not going to let. I, I have to find out for myself. You know, I was I, I was going to find a way, or I was going to find out on my own uh, that there was no way to get through there. And so, uh, so I traveled uh, the first 7,000 miles, wondering how I was going to get through the Darien Gap. And fortunately, uh, so you basically that that was like for you that was a mental roadblock. You had to figure out on that first 7,000 miles, that occupied your thinking. And I had absolutely no way, absolutely. I, okay. I knew I could get I could get through uh, every other portion because there were roads, and so then it was just a matter of, my, you know, uh, setting my own logistics and how I was gonna get there. But I had absolutely no idea how I was going to get through this uh, portion of land. Uh, and it wasn't a large area, it was uh, 80 miles or so. Uh, but but no roads. You're walking no roads, through water, swamp, and very, uh, very, very, very dangerous yeah. area to get through. And um, they didn't allow people to get through there from, uh, you know, uh, 
So how did you figure that out? I mean, where were you when you came up with the plan of how you were going to I was actually get... walking through Columbia when a friend of mine sent me a, a video of a, a documentary called The World's Most Dangerous Journey, where this um, journalist decided to find out how immigrants were mm. getting through this new, this new way uh, of getting into the United States was going through this dangerous track of land called the Darien Gap. And so this came out right before I went through there. And so they sent me this, this video and I looked at it and I said, that's what I need. And, and this journalist hadn't gone through the Darien Gap, but he had approached it and gone into it and gone part of the way through it looking for immigrants and trying to get a story for this documentary. And he had a photographer with him from Bogota, Colombia. And so immediately I thought, if I can contact this photographer, then he can give me some information on how I can possibly get through this area. And that's what I ended up doing. I got the name of this photographer. I looked him up. He agreed to help me. I took a side trip off of my walk uh, for one day and went into Bogota uh, and talked to this photographer. He gave me some contacts. And the most important contact he gave me was the contact of this guy who had helped them um, who he described as he knows all the bad guys in this Darien Gap area. And I said, that's the guy I need to talk to, <laughs> the guy that knows all the bad guys. Because uh, from what I had heard, without permission going through, without permission of all these um, um, uh, paramilitia groups, uh, there was no way that I was getting through there because um, it was the it's the Wild West there. It's the, you know, everybody carries... Uh, at the very least, the machete and um, you know AK-47s, machine guns, and because they they don't want people coming through their territory because uh, they they want their privacy. They you know they don't they don't want gringos. And as a matter of fact, uh, I was the only gringo that a lot of indigenous people when I walked through there had ever met before. Wow. And um, as it turns out, the most dangerous part, the most dangerous journey in the world for for a lot of people ended up being. Uh, spectacular and very memorable journey for me because I was actually treated like royalty going through there mm. um, from the people who had never uh, met what we consider, you know, uh, uh, a Westerner before. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. So um, I was fascinated also that your your guide could not take you the whole way. So kind of right. describe that, what happened there, and the, the conclusion of the Darien Gap. Well. Um, I met my guide, um, I, I knew what town he was in, but I had no, no, no way to contact him, I had no reception on my phone, so I just walked into this little Wild West town, basically, is what it was, which, which, uh, which they still paid for things with gold dust. Oh my goodness. And, um, not Bitcoin, but, but, but gold dust and, uh, and cash, and, and uh, I, I started walking around and I entered this little drugstore and I and I told the guy at the counter that I was looking for this uh, this guide that could take me through the Darien Gap and uh, and lo and behold they recognized the guy's name and uh, but they told me they didn't know have a way to get a hold of him I said well I have his phone number that I'd gotten from this photographer uh, but I had no way to contact him so I had the phone number they had the phone they called up. And, and the luckiest thing in the world, this guy happened to be on his motorcycle two blocks away at a stop sign. 
and so he came over and um, within a couple hours we were sitting in a bar drinking and he explained to me that first of all he had to verify my story of what I was doing which mm. I told him I was trying to set a Guinea's record walking from the very bottom of South America to the top of North America and then he said he had to verify that you know by contacting this photographer which he, who he knew and he also said that the other thing was that he had to contact um, some of these uh, leaders, these paramilitary leaders along the way, because he said, although he was friends with a lot of them, um, that that he had to be, he had to get permission to take me through there, uh, because even as friends, they would shoot him for coming through there without permission, as wow. well as they would shoot me. So. Um, so I said, okay, and uh, it took two days for us to get provisions, for him to get permission uh, to take me through. And um, and the way he knew a, a lot of these bad guys was because he was a gold prospector and his father was a gold prospector in this region um, for for years and years uh, prior to that. And so, so he knew a lot of these guys. That's fantastic. So, yeah, so tell the story or tell the portion where basically he couldn't go any further and okay yeah so um so you know this guy was a, from colombia and this town where i started was in colombia and then we went of course across the border going through a, a river system upper river system over a mountain range and then down through another river system going into panama and of course um as a I call him a guide, but basically what he was was a coyote, mm. and um, and so he got me through there. But if he was to get caught on the Panama side and the Panama uh, side of the border, uh, then he, you know he, he would spend a lot of jail time uh, because uh, it was illegal for him to do what he was doing. Um, there were no customs in that area. Uh, I actually uh, had had no problem getting through that area with him. But once I arrived in Panama, um, I ended up spending a, a couple of days in a detention area. Uh, I spent a night in jail. The Panama Border Patrol um, took away my passport, wouldn't give it back to me. Uh, they, uh, I was profiled uh, and... Um, because you're just a gringo coming through well, and they didn't know... I, I, I came through... A, a, in an illegal way because, and I didn't have the permission to come through. Got it, okay. Because what I had heard from previous people is that if you, I, I felt like it was better to ask for forgiveness afterwards than to ask permission ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, it's always easy and, to say no. Yeah. And it, it was a good thing because um, because if I had asked permission ahead of time, they would have told me no. Yep. And I know this from stories of other people that had done this and they were, uh, they were declined to, to come through there. Uh, because even even the government doesn't want you to come to it. So they didn't have um, customs areas set up in that place. So I actually came in illegally and um, played dumb. And uh, they took away my passport. They wouldn't give it to me. I went through a, a huge ordeal. I actually walked through the entire country of Panama illegally. Um, and... Um, were you ever concerned that you they had oh, your yeah, passport? I was always, yeah, I was always concerned. Uh, I had to walk, I had to walk, I had to walk 140 miles before I could get to Panama City from that southern border of Panama where I came into Panama, um, and then I spent three days going to the uh, the customs building 
and talking to actually the director of customs in Panama for three days before they would allow to even give me back my passport, but they wouldn't stamp it. And so hmm. that proved another dilemma for me once I got to the next country, which was uh, Costa Rica. And so I actually still was walking illegally through the rest of Panama until I got to Costa Rica. And, um, and it was only through a little bit more luck that I was able to cross that border into Costa Rica. Wow, that's amazing. A uh, lot of little stories that take a lot of time to tell. You know, if I had, if I had three days, I could go through every little story well, with you, but I, you know. That, yeah, I mean, uh, Cargo, I mean, that's the reason I think this story should be told in a more professional way, but um, I've just had the pleasure of sitting next to you on the bus, so. Um, all right, let's, wh why don't we um, fast forward to uh, Arizona. I want you to kind of tell that story as it relates to Bitcoin. But before we do that, why don't you, your, your, I mean, your Bitcoin story alone is fascinating. So why don't we um, tell the audience your Bitcoin story and merge the, the Bitcoin and the, the walk together in Arizona? Okay. Well, I got involved in Bitcoin uh, back in 2008. So this was after I had walked the Appalachian Trail and um, I was working at a little lake resort in Missouri and um, I'd done some on and off things with my nephew. Uh, with Bitcoin? Not with Bitcoin, uh, with other things online, some gambling sites where we could buy in with some bonuses and make a few bucks here and there and whatnot. But my nephew, uh, who was in his early 20s at the time, got involved with Bitcoin at an early stage, like in 2010, where he bought some Bitcoin. He was gung-ho, he'd heard about it. Um, uh, he was kind of a, a techie and he, uh, he got involved in it. And then uh, he took it to the next level where he, he designed and developed his own Bitcoin um, poker site, a site called Seals with Clubs. And, um, and so he started earning money using Bitcoin. Of course, he had to, he was in the development stages of that. So, I mean, he had to play in, uh, you know, in the early stages, had to play in almost every one of those poker games online, uh, you know, started with one game at a time and then it developed into two and then it caught on and, uh, and then, you know, but that was the only way you could, you could, uh, you had to deposit Bitcoin into this site to play, to play poker. And so he came and visited me the summer of 2012 and, um, you know, was telling me about, you know, what he'd gotten into and asked me, he said, hey, do you, you know, do you want to buy some Bitcoin? And at the time I was thinking, oh God, you know, he's strapped for cash, you know, I always help him out. So yeah, I've got about a thousand bucks here. So, um, so I, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin from him. Of course, at the time, Bitcoin was $5 a Bitcoin. And I'm I had jealous. no idea what I had done. <laughs> and um, I ended up sitting on that Bitcoin and I'm still sitting on it. Not all of it. I've, I've spent along the way. And, um, and of course, uh, as you well know, when, if you got into it that early, uh, then you're just a freaking genius. I never considered myself a genius. I always considered myself very, very lucky. And thank goodness I did my little nephew a favor. Yeah, that's time, right. You know? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which he's done, of course, uh, probably a hundred times better than that. Oh wow! Um, Fantastic. So you know, with with his with his sight and stuff. So, but anyhow, um, how that correlates to my walk is, um, 
you know, Bitcoin had its ups and down, uh, uh, you know, 2014, 2000, you know, but uh, of course it was 2017 when I was walking, doing, you know, doing my walk and I was actually walking up through Arizona and, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have cell service all the time. Most of the time I didn't uh, going through the countryside, but, uh, but my, my brother calls me uh, on the phone and said, oh my God, uh, have you seen what Bitcoin's doing? And I said, no, I, you know, I haven't seen Bitcoin in, you know, weeks at all, you know. And he said, uh, you need to check it out. So next township I got to, uh, I went online and I looked at Bitcoin and, and I, I was, oh my God, I, I, I'm, I'm a freaking millionaire. And, um, you know, it just blew my mind. And of course, uh, two days later, uh, you know, uh, I went from being a, a millionaire to a multimillionaire. And uh, uh, of course, a month later, then I, I wasn't, I wasn't again. But you know, <laughs> still, you know, that's one of those things that you always dream of when you're growing up. You know, I think everybody wants to be a millionaire, and suddenly, I had become a millionaire. You know, and it was all uh, uh, because of Bitcoin or whatnot. And of course, my brother's suggestion at the time was, "Hey, why don't you just quit that?" freaking walk you're on and buy a jet and fly back home and uh, uh, my answer to him was you know there's a lot of there's a lot of people with a lot of money out there and millionaires and stuff but there nobody's ever through walked this uh, trip before and uh, you know I was 12,000 miles into it and I wasn't stopping there and Bitcoin could wait for me um, and fortunately um, uh, it, it did and it's it's done even of course much 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 better than what it even did at that time and so uh, and I'm I'm still hodling it well that's I mean I, I think even as a Bitcoin principle of, of low time preference I mean just in that that um, that ability to restrain yourself at that time is definitely a Bitcoin principle uh, and I find it fascinating <laughs> I find it fascinating um, so, Cargo, what, uh, I guess, the other memorable moments when um, you were, I guess, contacted by the Today Show and then, you know, what was happening uh, right outside of Reno and all that. So, kind of walk the viewer or the listeners through your little medical adventure. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, about the same time that I realized that I, I was a Bitcoin millionaire, um, I got contacted by NBC, the, the Today Show. Uh, who had seen uh, a couple articles on me already from like South America? I was in um, I was an outdoor uh, or backpack magazine, and uh, they had seen uh, an article on me and decided that they wanted to to put me on the Today Show, and, which I agreed to. And so they met me and uh, coming across the Hoover Dam, and they spent they brought a crew down and spent three days with me doing a story and. Um, and that was really exciting for me, and uh, so I thought that uh, I could, you know, get my story out there a little bit uh, uh, when they did this. Uh, of course, the stories, uh, they said it would probably take a couple weeks before it came, you know, it, it, it aired and whatnot. And uh, shortly after that, though, uh, walking up through Nevada, uh, I ended up having a major heart attack, which, I have no idea how that happened. I felt like I was in the walking 30 plus miles a day. I was in the best shape of my life, but but uh, you know, I'm 
57 years old, 58 years old then, and so, uh, you know, it, it happens, and, and I had a major heart attack, and ended up in the hospital, they put a stent in me, and had tubes running up my nose, and uh, I took a selfie of myself, and I figured, uh, uh, you know, I need to get this word out to NBC before they try to air that story, because now I felt like there was a possibility that I wouldn't be able to continue. And, um, but NBC said, uh, we're gonna do the story for you anyhow. And uh, that actually inspired me to say, um, you know, who says I have to quit now? At least I can keep on trying, you know, even if I've had a major heart attack and the doctors are recommending that, uh, you know, of course that I stop and that it's crazy for me to continue. Uh, but, uh, Five days after recovering in the hospital, I um, uh, had a friend come and support me and I drove back down to where I, I, I had, had to get off because of the heart attack and I started walking again. Uh, I went five days, I went, uh, the next day I did 12 days, the next day I did 17, 23, and then by day five I was back up to 30 miles a day and I haven't had any heart symptoms since then. You know, it's been about four years now, and so fortunately I didn't take anybody's advice and I continued going, and it, you know, I inspired uh, evidently a lot of people, and, uh, and I, you know, it just inspired it inspired me to continue going on. That's great, and um, I guess as a physician, I mean, what you did was probably the best cardiac rehab anybody could have, could have wanted. Um, so my hat's off to you for, for doing that. And I guess the other very memorable experience you had on your walk was in your Northwest Passage and you know, I guess the, the ending toward in Alaska, I guess not Northwest Passage, but you, you were actually in Alaska on the ice road. So kind of, kind of uh, ex well also I, I want you to kind of explain what happened to your, 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 one of your tendons and how you finished the, the journey. Well, uh, I think as I mentioned before that uh, on my initial try uh, to do this walk, I injured a tendon in my, uh, tore the tendon in my left foot and, um, and it stopped me pretty much dead in my tracks at that time after only going 2,000 miles. And um, I had to, you know, uh, uh, let that heal up before I started again. Uh, and so as I was going up through uh, Canada um, the, during the last time there I re-injured that same thing I, I, I stressed it out again and I re-injured that same tendon uh, to the point to where I, I couldn't put any pressure on it at all it was so tender and um, I ended up having to jury rig a little contraption on my leg uh, to keep that pressure off that foot and I had to go on crutches uh, and I still had 2,000 miles left, but of course, after going, you know, 12,000 miles now, there was no way I was stopping. Absolutely, I was yeah. gonna crawl if I had to, and, but I was able to do this to where I could continue going on crutches, which is very painful. If anybody knows that's been on crutches, but then to walk 30 miles on crutches a day, um, especially starting off is, is really kind of a horrible experience. But, um, uh, so I'm on crutches and, uh, and of course, over time, it's getting better, and um, and I got to the point to where. What I, you mean, like after the first thousand miles, it got better. Yeah, it, gets, it got better, and, and my foot got better to where I probably didn't have to walk on pressure, except that it was more of a preventive 
from stepping, you know, on a rock or in a hole and redoing it again and having to go through the whole thing. So I continued on those crutches, um, you know, as a preventive maintenance type of, of thing, not to, to re-injure uh, what had already healed up, you know. And so, so uh, I, I was supposed to meet NBC uh, to do a follow-up story once I finished at the top of Alaska and I got to uh, the two days before I was supposed to to finish my walk and uh, camping out uh, one night um, two, two days before I, I ran across a grizzly bear um, that woke me up in the middle of the night and um, the only defense I had uh, against this grizzly bear who came at me was was my crutches and fortunately I ended up hitting uh, the, the bear across the nose with one of my crutches and um, and that kind of stopped him in his tracks and um, uh, he took off and uh, uh, that's how I thought I thought for a minute I'd, I'd walked for a year and a half and and my fate was going to be getting eaten by a, a grizzly the day before I I completed my walk but uh, fortunately I was able to complete it it's just a fantastic story and there's a lot more color to it that uh, Cargo was able to share on the on the bus ride but you know I know you've had plenty of time to kind of think about the lessons that, have, that you've learned and maybe if you could just kind of let's wrap this up with that and maybe intersect that with you know Bitcoin and maybe how they relate and we were talking a little bit about this this idea of fear kind of gripping society and a lot of people and obviously uh, you faced fear, but it's one thing to face it. It's another thing to overcome it. But, you know, what, what kind of lessons did you learn and, and maybe maybe what Bitcoin's reinforced in, in those lessons? Right. Well, um, you know, fear factor is a big part of almost everybody's life a anymore. You know, we all were surrounded by, uh, you know, people always warning you about this and being afraid of this and that and whatnot. Um, and I, I, I always... From a very young age, I've always chosen to to experience things myself and not allow myself to be influenced in a negative way. Uh, and I feel like fear is a, a negative is a negative way. Um, and, and sort of the same thing. Once I I realized, uh, you know, initially I bought the Bitcoin as a favor to my nephew, which is kind of ridiculous. But but uh, once I realized what I have. Then it was a matter of listening people say, hey, you need to get rid of that as soon as possible because uh, this is speculative this or is speculative. Scam, yeah. This is a tulip uh, uh, situation and whatnot. And, you know, so I did a lot of thinking about it and 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 I did a lot of research on Bitcoin and, and the developers of Bitcoin and, and and what it was mostly about. And I, you know, I came to realize that this wasn't just uh, an investment for me. That that, you know, how to how to make more money to me. This was this was a, a new way of life. This was uh, um, this was a, a very new experience. Uh, how to avoid um, this uh, um, uh, being part of the the, the normal system um, and. And so I decided, you know, that that I wanted to be a part of this of this thing. You know, that's kind of part of my character is to is to try new things. And 
Uh, Bitcoin to me is is a is a game changer. Now, just like some of the things that I that I feel like I've done are, were game changers to me, and that if I'd have listened to, you know, friends and family, that I never would have experienced. And so, Bitcoin's kind of the same thing with me now. And and so that's one of the reasons I'm here at this convention now, is uh, is to be around people who feel the same way that I do uh, and are developing all these new technologies and ideas around Bitcoin and it's very exciting and I want to be a part of that and, and, and anything that I can do to, to you know, maybe be a good influence uh, to other people uh, to, to get people to see that, that you know, Bitcoin is possibly a, a great adventure and a great experience uh, that, that, um, that they can be a part of. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. Before I let you go today, I wanna make you aware of Bitcoin Lake. Bitcoin Lake is a project Patrick has started in Panajachel, Guatemala on Lake Atilan. The hope is to model a structure similar to Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. Our desire is that this would be a Bitcoin community project. You can check out the project on Twitter at Lake Bitcoin. We'd love for you to consider being a part of this project with a small donation to directly help this community become a Bitcoin circular economy. And if you're sensing you could use some help and clarity of direction for you or for your church in adopting Bitcoin, we'd love to talk. Start a conversation with us by visiting the links in the show notes of today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mission Bitcoin podcast. To access the tools discussed today, be sure to use the links found in the show notes. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.